Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. In a small suburb just outside of Orlando sits Chuliota a royal community that is nestled in with beautiful pine trees and 244-acre lake mills. Chiliota means Pine Island, Isle of Pines, or beautiful place depending on who you talk to. But for its residents, it's a peaceful place to live with a beautiful countryside view. At 2112 Sultan Circle sits a beautiful and spacious four-bed, four-bath brick home with a haunting secret. The four walls of this gorgeous family home contains the story of what happened the night of January 24, 2019, where 59-year-old Chad Amato, 61-year-old Margaret Amato, and 31-year-old Cody Amato were murdered. The only person to know what happened that night is tight-lipped 31-year-old Grant Amato, and he has left it up to the world to decide how the story goes. Warning, the following content may contain elements that are not suitable for some audiences. Listener discretion advised. Good evening, everyone. Let me introduce you to tonight's case. It's one of an online obsession that becomes a destinate for anyone who gets in the way. This case is rocking the internet, but not because of who did it, but why they did it. It's a motive that's rarely used, and with today's technology, you would think we would have heard of this one time and time again, but this is a new one, even for me. Let me introduce you to the Amato family. Chad Robert Amato was born July 27, 1959. He was a clinical pharmacist at CVS, and he also had a second job working at home on people's computers. He was a self-professed computer guru. Margaret Ann Amato, or Peggy as she was known to her friends and family, was born July 11, 1957. She was a client operations manager for a healthcare company that allowed her to work from home. In the early 1980s, the pair would meet, marrying when Margaret's son, Jason, was just three. Chad would go on to adopt Jason as his own. In the fall of 1987, Chad and Margaret would welcome their first son together, Cody Winston Amato. He was born September 22nd. 
Just a year and a half later, they rounded their family out with their third son, Grant Tyrion Amato, born May 20th, 1989. All three boys grew up close, as it was reported that Chad didn't let a whole lot of children over for play dates. But with Cody and Grant being so close in age, only a year and a half, they developed an almost unbreakable bond, and the two did everything together. In high school, they were on the same weightlifting team. They were part of the same competitive airsoft team called Remedy. They loved to go out and shoot their firearms and their airsoft guns. So it, you know, it's natural. They developed these dreams to do together. They virtually had the same outlook in life. They wanted to own matching BMWs. They wanted to live in the home they grew up in when their parents retired to Tennessee. And to obtain these goals, the brothers enrolled in nursing school after Grant graduated from the University of Central Florida. They would go on to earn their degrees and eventually their license. But at this point, Cody had kind of taken on the caretaker role for Grant, and he decided when to continue their education. So the pair enrolled in CRNA school, or Certified Registered Nurse Anesthetist School. Unfortunately, Grant would fell out of this program, and this would be the beginning of his downward spiral in life. On July 21st, 2018, staff discovered eight empty vials of medication in two of the rooms that Grant was overseeing. And when they checked the medication cart records, they noticed that it was Grant's credentials that were entered to obtain eight vials of propofol. And if you don't know what propofol is, it's the drug that killed Michael Jackson. It's a very powerful sedative. It requires that the patient is monitored while under the effects of this medication. And since neither patient had doctor's orders to have this medication, the hospital staff couldn't guarantee that Grant followed protocol when administering it. And when the staff confronted Grant, he had this to say, quote, I administered the drug to patients who are not being adequately relaxed, end quote. He took it upon himself to prescribe medication to patients that he thought the attending physician was not taking care of. Grant was arrested for the theft of all eight vials of medication and charged with grand theft in the third degree. He was fired from his job at Advent Health in Orlando and his nursing license was suspended pending the investigation. So here's Grant, 29 years old, jobless, living at home with his parents, and he needed an attorney because now he has these grand theft charge, and it's left up to Cody, who had taken on this role of caretaker. And Cody pays $8,000 for a retainer so that Grant would have an attorney so he was adequately represented if the case ever went to trial. With Grant's newfound free time, he would use it to scour the internet and work on his gaming. At least that's what he was telling his family he was doing. Instead, he developed odd hours where he was up all night online and slept all day. But he also developed a nice little spending habit. And when I say nice, I mean several thousands of dollars nice. When Cody and Chad and Margaret confronted Grant about, you know, the money he is spending, he says he's using the money to promote himself on Twitch. 
And Twitch is a gaming platform for people who want to upload themselves playing a video game or stream themselves playing. And users can interact with the player or with each other. And if they feel inclined, they can donate to the player. And there are quite a few people who have a very successful career being a streamer on Twitch. However, that's not what Grant was doing with the money. Grant had slipped into this dark, explicit world of online pornography. He met a cam model named Sylvie, and she would play a major role in Grant's decision-making going forward. Grant told Sylvie of this extravagant lifestyle of him being an online gamer and having a BMW and owning his own home, and in his mind, it made him more appealing to Sylvie. And I mean, in reality, it would be because, you know, the alternative is a 29-year-old with a criminal history living at home with his parents because he couldn't even follow some simple orders from the doctor. Grant did not have a normal relationship with Sylvie. In his head, he did. I mean, in his head, He thought, you know, I'm her boyfriend and she's my girlfriend and this is just a normal relationship. Even though the two had never met because Sylvie was from Bulgaria. But Sylvie was just doing her job and her time was not cheap. It costs 90 cam tokens per minute for Grant to interact with Sylvie. And when I say interact, I mean if she models clothing that is sent to her either by Grant or other suitors, Um, if she talks, if she performs explicit activities, or even has some playtime with her sex toys that the suitors had sent her. Either way, her time was not cheap. It cost 90 cam tokens a minute for there to be interaction. Grant would purchase 5,000 tokens at a time for $600. And Later, Grant admits to he would, on average, talk to Sylvie four hours a night. So for all of you, for all of you who are curious, I broke down the math. So 5,000 tokens equaled $600 and it was 90 tokens per minute, which means he was only getting 55 and a half minutes of interaction out of Sylvie for $600. So in order to have the average four hour night conversation, Grant was spending roughly $2,400 a night to maintain this online relationship. $2,400 a night. Grant would plead with Sylvie to kind of cut him some slack when it came to her material and their interaction. And, you know, she was known to send a Christmas card to Grant or, you know, I'm not really sure how in-depth the free part of this would go. But if you get online, you can get on YouTube and you can look up Grant Amato. There's a video and he's taping himself walking from the home, apparently to the mailbox. And he's pleading with Sylvie to send him something for free. And the video says, quote, all right, Sylvie, look at me. I'm, I'm outside going to check the mail and I'm asking you if you could please, pretty please send me one of your videos. I just love it so much when you send them to me. I don't like buying your stuff. It makes me feel weird. Could you please send me one? End quote. He's a 29-year-old man begging for free interaction 
from a woman he has convinced himself he's dating, but really she's a woman just doing her job and earning money. In all, Grant would end up stealing $220,000 from his parents and Cody in order to feed his obsession with the online cam model. $95,000 came from Chad and Margaret's credit and debit cards. Another $65,000 came from a loan that Grant took out on the family home. Grant stole $60,000 from Cody's credit cards and his debit card, plus an undetermined amount of money because Grant took all of Cody's guns and sold them. Now, to be fair, Grant also sold his for a few thousand dollars. So that made, you know, a dent in his debt. In early December, Cody, Grant, and their friend Jericho had planned to travel to Japan. And Cody funded Grant's entire expense on this trip. And by this time, his family was aware of Sylvie, but I don't think they were aware of his obsession and how all-consuming it would become in the next month and a half. At the beginning of December of 2018, Grant had a great time. Not only was he going on this trip to Japan, he also had the charges of grand theft dropped against him, which means his license was active. However, there was a mark against his license saying he had been accused of stealing medication, but he was free and clear to go back to work. Cody had hoped that this trip would be good for Grant. He hoped it would give him some of the self-esteem he may have lost when he was fired and also hoped to kind of push Grant and give him the initiative to go and find another job so the two could continue to do things like this together. Because in Cody's mind, he still wanted all those dreams they had before, you know, when they were younger about their BMWs and the house. But for Grant, he just wanted Sylvie. Jericho would testify later in court that they had planned on, on visiting a museum in Japan. Now, the guys went to Japan. All three of them were really into anime, and they went because, you know, of the history. That's where anime comes from, is Japan. So to go to this museum that is going to teach them the culture and tell them, you know, how anime came to be was like the cherry on top. But that morning... Grant mysteriously comes down with food poisoning, even though the three guys had been eating at the same places, virtually the same food, it was only Grant who ended up feeling awful. Shortly before the three were set to head back home, Cody had gone to take a shower and Grant sees the opportunity. He tells Jericho he's going to go down to the lobby and get him something to eat. And so he leaves and Cody gets out of the shower and he becomes a little frantic. Now, Cody at this point was aware of Grant's obsession with Sylvie. And during the trip, Jericho said that the energy was not as what he had, not as high as he had hoped it would be going with the two because it seemed like Cody was stressed. If Grant would get too far away from Cody, Cody would bark at him and, and say, Grant, here now, you know, get over here. You're not supposed to, you don't wander off. You know, he treated him as a child, but, you know, he had taken on the role of caretaker long before Grant started this spiral. So when Cody got out of the shower and he noticed that Grant's gone, he looks into the hotel closet and noticed not only is Grant gone, but his duffel bag is gone, which means his stuff is gone. 
So Cody kind of freaks out and tells Jericho, you know, hang tight. I'm going to go find Grant. And a couple hours later, he finds Grant inside what's called a pachinko. And it's a place that has video games or bright light games. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes they're used for gambling. Grant's not in there to gamble. He's in there to use their Wi-Fi on his tablet. And it's never confirmed what he's doing. But you and I both can probably deduce that he's actively trying to either communicate with Sylvie or talking to Sylvie. In mid-December of 2018, the tension in the Amato home was rising. According to Grant, Chad was coming home every day from work and lecturing him about what he was doing with his life and the direction it was going. And probably in his dad's mind, he was trying to steer his son in a new, healthier direction. Only Grant wanted no part of this life anymore. Sylvie had become all-consuming and Grant wasn't going to let anyone or anything stop it. According to Grant, he was working on expunging his record at this time because even though his license was valid and he could use it again, he still had that negative mark. And so he said he was trying to have that negative mark removed during this time. Chad would break down on the phone when he talked to his sister-in-law, Donna, and she said that was the first time in the 27 years that she knew Chad for him to break down and cry, and he was telling her about Grant and this new path in life. And he said, quote, Yeah, I'm going to have to work a few more years than I thought I'd have to, but it's okay. I'll do it for Grant. I don't want him to go to jail. End quote. On the evening of December 19th, Chad would come home once again lecturing Grant, only this time Grant had had enough. And a fight broke out. It wasn't a physical fight. It was a verbal fight. And the family, Chad, Margaret, and Cody were kind of coming down on Grant. And he just had had enough. He ends up storming out of the house and into the night. And he later texted his mom, quote, really tired of everything, just going to handle it my own way, end quote. And his own way was hiding out at his Aunt Donna's house. And when Margaret had received the text message, you know, it was a little concerning. She was afraid Grant was going to hurt himself. So she had filed a missing persons report only to turn around and cancel it as soon as they knew where Grant was. And at this point, Chad, Margaret, and they've brought Jason in. He's had his own life. He's got his own family he's working with. Now he's got to come and help Chad, Margaret, and Cody keep an eye on Grant because they have no idea what he's going to do next. So they take turns in 12-hour shifts watching Donna's house so that Grant can't escape. And soon, Donna falls victim to Grant, too. She starts noticing that there are mysterious charges on her card. And when the family finds out that Grant has started taking money from her, they start to call her, begging and pleading, you know, not to call the police. And Cody goes as far as saying, I will pay it back. I'll pay everything back that he stole. And she agrees. And on December 23rd, the family stages an intervention with Grant out in front of Donna's house in the driveway. And they all are kind of telling him, you know, you need to get help. This is not healthy. This is not the way, this is not how relationships work. Eventually, Grant agrees and he goes to get help and one can only wonder did he only go to get them off his back 
because it was a very short-lived hope. On December 28th, Chad and Cody drove Grant to Fort Lauderdale, where Grant would check himself into the Cornerstone Recovery Center for sex addiction and depression. It was voluntary. It had appeared that Grant had hit his rock bottom, but this was not rock bottom for Grant Amato. While in rehab, Grant's family reached out to Sylvie, and they told her just who Grant really was. He wasn't some professional online gamer. He didn't own luxurious cars or a home. He was a jobless 29-year-old living at home with his parents. And it's never understood as to what Sylvie thought of the whole interaction. She's from Bulgaria. She never is interviewed. She never comes forward. She took the money and ran. I mean, that's what she was getting paid to do. She did it. She sold herself well to Grant, and Grant paid a very high price to have interaction with Sylvie. So it's never understood whether or not she thought the relationship was going the same way as Grant did. I would highly doubt that's what she thought. I think she was more along the lines that she had found herself a sucker, and she was bleeding him dry. and it probably never occurred to her how he was getting this money because, you know, he's some big shot online gamer making all this money. And in reality, he sold every dime of it from his family. And she would cut ties with Grant at this point, supposedly. Grant checks himself out of rehab on January 9th, 2019, just a week and a half of checking himself in. And it said that staff thought Grant was doing well and he could handle the situation. He could not. Just FYI. When he came home, he was welcomed, but Chad had an ultimatum lined out for him. And the family went out to a local pizzeria to go over this ultimatum. The first one was he had a choice of living options, and with each option became a different set of rules. His options were living at home, living on his own, or joining the military. And for Grant, he chose to live at home. Well, this meant Chad had rules, and he was going to follow them if he was going to continue to live under his father's roof. And one of the rules was he would, the family would no longer pay for any current, remaining, or future debts of grants. They were cutting him off. That was it. You're done. And this included everything Cody had already committed to paying. He told Grant I, he'd pay for his rehab. He told his Aunt Donna he was going to pay her back for everything that Cody stole. You know, he had paid for the retainer. And all of which stems back to Cody's self-obligation of being the caretaker for Grant. But Grant says this was Cody's way of controlling, and he didn't understand how Grant could care for someone as much as he did for Sophie. The life they had dreamed of living together as brothers was no longer the life that Grant dreamed of. Grant also was not allowed to have any more post-midnight internet use and absolutely no more talking to Sylvie. He was being treated like a child. You know, you're not staying up all night. You're not doing this. You're going to 
be a normal human being, go to bed normal, get up normal. You're not, you're just not going to do this anymore. They had had enough. Yeah, they, they limited his TV time. And I'm not laughing because the, the situation's funny. I'm laughing because he's 29 and they had to lay down very black and white rules for him to follow. His current phone had been terminated and Chad got him another phone that had no data, had no internet. He had an old school flip phone. You know, you can't get on the internet. You can call and you can text, but that's it. Nothing else. He had to go and get a job, which he could. His license was good. He could go out and get a job. But he just didn't want to because that interfered with his time with Sylvie. He was also to take care of his own debt, so everything that Cody had promised to pay now fell on Grant. He owed the family money and an apology. Grant would agree to these terms, later telling detectives, quote, I mean, I get it. I was acting childish, end quote. And he was. I mean, up until this point, every decision was either made with his brother Cody and the ones he did make on his own were very immature decisions. He chose a woman who he could he he couldn't see he couldn't touch it. You know, there was no physical contact between the two. It was through a camera and a screen and he paid for that time. It's not like she gave him this time. They they didn't meet on a dating app. They met on a pornographic website and he paid a lot of money to interact with her. And that money was her livelihood. That's how she lived. So of course she was going to loosely use the term love or she flirted. Let's, I mean, let's just call it what it is. She flirted and she paid for it. And she did, you know, explicit things and she got paid for it. She made just off of Grant. She made a ton of money. I went in and I looked to see kind of how the breakdown was for a person who was a cam model. And she virtually made 80, 80% of what Grant spent on her. That doesn't include the clothing that was sent or the toys that were sent or any other present he deemed that she needed. It doesn't include any of that. So he was spending money on a woman that it was her job. It wasn't his money and she didn't really love him. But in his mind, they had a relationship that was meant to last a life. We are going to get into a timeline. I will give you no other information regarding the timestamps at this time. I would like you to listen closely. Make an attempt to be unbiased. Form your opinion of who is behind them all. These timestamps are based off the testimonies of Geraldine Bly, Digital Forensic Examiner. On January 24, 2019, Grant would say there was a big fight that broke out. Chad grabbed Grant's shirt and told him to get out after he found out that Grant was still talking to Sylvie on Twitter. According to Grant, this was the last time he saw Chad, Margaret, and Cody alive. The evidence tells a different story. At 4 o'clock in the afternoon on the 24th, 
anyone looking into the Amato family home would see a seemingly normal routine. Grant was on the couch watching TV. Margaret had just pulled chicken out of the freezer before pouring herself a glass of wine. Nothing about this afternoon was normal. At 4.44 p.m., the last recorded activity on Margaret's laptop would occur. At 5.25 p.m., Chad's health app on his iPhone recorded 67 steps. No activity was recorded on this phone between 5.25 p.m. and 5.52 p.m. At 5.52 p.m., Chad's iPhone was unlocked. The settings were changed so the phone would stay unlocked and would remain unlocked until midnight. At 6.01 p.m., the Notes app was opened and every note inside the application was accessed. This was not a common occurrence in the past. At 6.14 p.m., the Safari app was opened. Two searches were made. How to wipe an iPhone without a passcode and if you forget a passcode. At 6.46 p.m., a message was sent to Cody. At 6.47 p.m., Cody responds. At 8.27 p.m., the Ring doorbell app was deleted. At 9.07 p.m., the message app was opened. Nothing was sent or received. At 9.11 p.m., there would be two incoming calls from Cody. Both would be deleted from the call log. At 11.28 p.m., the Safari app was opened again. Searches were made along with a visit to the Apple website. 11.32 p.m. to 12.27 a.m., a thumb drive was connected to Grant's computer. 2,500 files were transferred, including 647 pictures of Sylvie, some of which were explicit. Explicit videos of Sylvie were also transferred. At 11.39 p.m., Cody's iPhone is connected to Grant's computer. Nothing happens because there is no passcode entered. At 11.42 p.m., Cody's iPhone is connected to Grant's computer in recovery mode. At 12.08 a.m., the USAA banking app on Chad's iPhone is accessed with the biometric fingerprint. At 12.31 a.m., Chad's iPhone is locked and unlocked, and the Blink video monitoring app is deleted. No videos were stored. At 3.06 a.m., Grant makes a payment of $599.99 to restore his account on MyFreeCams.com. He uses the public Wi-Fi from the Publix. Knowing this digital timeline and the technological footprints, what is it all telling you? I know what it's telling me, but are we coming to the same conclusion? On January 25th, 2019, at 9 a.m., Grant would attend his job interview with Erica Johansson at Express Scripts. This was earlier than his scheduled 10 a.m. appointment, 
and Erica would testify in court that Grant looked, quote, creepy. His eyes were glossy and pink, end quote. At 9 a.m. at 2112 Sultan Circle, looking at the home of the Amato family, it looked peaceful and quiet. But Seminole County Deputy Todd Moderson was pulling into the driveway to perform a wellness check on Cody Amato. A co-worker of Cody's had called when Cody didn't show up for his scheduled shift, and this was out of character for him. Cody's car was in the driveway. Moderson would knock on the front door, announcing himself to anyone who may be inside. No one answered. Moderson went around the home, knocking or banging on the windows again announcing himself. There was no answer. There was no noticeable movement in the home. Moderson would use an air horn from his cruiser to alert somebody in the home. Again, no answer, no movement. Moderson got in contact with his immediate supervisor requesting permission to enter the home. He was granted permission under the stipulation that he would wait for backup and enter the home without causing any damage to personal property. Once the backup arrives, Moderson used a technique to unengage a half-engaged deadbolt on a side door of the Amato home. Moderson would find Cody's body first. Cody was located just inside the doorway leading from the garage to the home. He had been shot just below his left eye and was found in the fetal position with blood pooling at his feet. The body of Chad was found next, but it had been mistaken for Grant. Chad was found in the kitchen, face up, with two gunshot wounds to the back of his head. There was a trail of blood where he initially was shot while cleaning out his lunchbox to where he now lay. A handgun and holster were found on his hip. Moderson would find Margaret last. Margaret was found slumped over her desk with one gunshot wound to the face and her half-empty glass of wine sat next to her. It was determined that they had found Chad and not Grant in the kitchen, so a bolo or a be-on-the-lookout was issued for Grant in his car. On January 26, Grant was located at the Doubletree Motel by the Hilton in Orlando. This was two days after the slayings of his family. Grant had registered to the room at 2.47 p.m. on January 24th, the day his family was murdered. He would go with the detectives voluntarily. Now, Grant was interviewed for nearly seven hours, and his demeanor would be noted as calm, and he was very forthcoming with information when the, when the detectives asked him questions. However, Grant never once asked why he was there or how his family was. And when he was asked questions about his family, he spoke of them in the past tense. Now, for two and a half, nearly three hours, Grant just talked about himself until detectives laid down a picture of his mother who had been shot of his father, who had been shot, and of his brother, the very brother that protected him every time he turned around, and he had been shot. And Grant breaks down, refusing to look at the photographs. 
Now, if you'll remember back to Gabriel's case, we talked about how sometimes when a person commits a crime against somebody they know, they tend to do so so that they disassociate themselves from the victim. Now, Chad was the only one that was shot from behind. And poor Margaret and Cody had to look at Grant. But at this point, Grant could not look at the photographs. He had to disassociate himself from those crimes. But he adamantly said he had nothing to do with the murder of his family. And towards the end of the interview, Jason Amato was allowed to come into the room and talk to Grant. And the eldest brother begged Grant to tell him what really happened. You know, this is my mom and this is my dad and my brother too. And I need to know what you did. If you did something to him, I need to have this closure is how Jason had approached his youngest brother. And eventually, I mean, he wasn't getting anywhere with Grant. Grant was, I didn't do this. I, this isn't me. Jason would tell his brother, I don't feel comfortable being in this room with you. And Grant says, I understand. Before Jason leaves the room, he says, quote, I'll pray for you, brother, because I can't pray for mom, dad, or Cody anymore. End quote. Grant is allowed to leave the police department following this interview. But his freedom would be short-lived. On January 28, 2019, Grant Tyrion Amato was arrested for first-degree murder with one count for each family member, Chad, Margaret, and Cody. He was initially denied bail, but then it was granted at $750,000. However, there was a stipulation that he could not use any money that came from the family's estate to post his bail. And at some point while he's in jail, he is actively trying to make claims on all three of his dead family members' life insurance policy. And that may be where that stipulation came from with the judge. I don't know. But eventually Grant contacts some very wealthy people. And he says, basically, if you will post my bond or my bail of $750,000, I will sell you the exclusive rights to my story. $750,000 price tag on that story, it's got to be one hell of a story. Nobody ever takes him up on his offer. And I must say that from a person who is adamantly saying they are not guilty, they are not involved in the murder of their family, to have a story worth $750,000 and you're willing to sell it for that, I would say there's probably some guilt inside of this story. I don't know, just me. That's a hell of a story for that much money. Grant would go to trial just six months following his arrest, and the state of Florida would be seeking the death penalty against Grant Amato. Now, normally, when we see a trial occur, the prosecution has three major things. A confession, a murder weapon, and DNA evidence. In Grant Amato's case, they don't have anything. He never confessed. They never found a murder weapon. 
Even though there was guns in the home, none of those guns ever matched with the ballistics that came from the bodies of Chad, Cody, and Mark. DNA was not found. DNA from his family was not found on anything that he had in the hotel with him when he was arrested. So they didn't have any DNA evidence that linked Grant to the murders. They did find some gloves, some black leather gloves, and Grant's DNA is located on the inside of those gloves. There is nobody else's DNA located on the outside. They do test positive for gunshot residue. However, the testimonies that come in from the investigators that are, you know, skilled in gunshot residue when count when they are cross-examined they state that it is possible that if a firearm was fired and then laid on top of those gloves there would be a transfer of gunshot residue to the glove so just because there is a presence of gunshot residue does not mean that the person wearing them fired the gun okay and I, and this this is going to apply no matter how you look at that or what case you look at. But we think gunshot residue guilty, they fired a firearm, right? But they, you know, during cross-examination, they were like, hold up, just because it's there doesn't mean that they could have only got it from firing a weapon. There are other ways to, to have gunshot residue on those gloves. So prosecution is standing there with a purely circumstantial case. They had nothing. They didn't have three of those major factors that we need to prove to the jury beyond a reason of doubt that this person committed these crimes. So they are standing there with a hope, basically. Now, this looks good for the defense. They, you know, they don't have to recant on any confession Grant makes because he adamantly denies even to this day that he had anything to do with his family's murder. So they don't have to worry about that. They never found a murder weapon, so they don't have to worry about it being tied back to Grant. So there's not, they don't have to refute that evidence. And because there was no DNA evidence, they don't have to refute that either. They have a fairly easy fight in front of them until Detective Blay gets up on the stand and testifies with the digital forensic evidence, that timeline that we had gone over. Now, one of Grant's neighbors would testify to hearing gunshots around 9, 9.30 the evening of the 24th. And the reason they remember this, because initially they thought it was odd to hear gunfire that late at night. However, with Chuliota being a very royal community, they thought otherwise and just didn't, you know, didn't contact anybody. Now, another one of Grant's neighbors, he testifies to hearing three popping sounds the morning of the 25th. So let's go back and count some wounds, shall we? Cody had one, Chad had two, and Margaret had one. So one plus two plus one don't equal three popping sounds. And the neighbor could never guarantee or confirm that the popping sounds were gunfire. So his testimony, a little shaky. 
Cody and Grant's friend Jericho would get on the stand and testify for the state as well. And in December of 2018, after the guys had come home from Japan, Jericho was out to dinner and he went to pay for the Discover card that is linked to his entire family. So his whole family has access to this credit card and it's denied. It says the count's been frozen. So Jericho gets with his dad and his dad sends in a screenshot of three purchases. One of was allowed to clear and the other two were denied on the credit card. They were all for myfreecams.com. Grant had stole Jericho's credit card. Jericho would also tell them about a gun he had purchased and it was a gun from one of his favorite animes, which is why he purchased it. Grant was with him when he made this purchase. Grant was with Jericho when he would sell the gun, that same gun, to one of their mutual friends, Blake Turnpin. Blake would get on the stand and testify for the state as well. About two weeks before the murders, Grant was hanging out at Blake's house uh, shortly after he came home from rehab, and he would be left unattended in Blake's room when he went to use the restroom. And Blake said that there was no way that his roommates would have entered his room. That's just not how things are. But Grant could have. And when he walked into the room, he could easily see the weapon in the box on a shelf in the closet because Blake never closed the closet door. Now, a couple weeks after the murder, Blake went to move around some of his firearms. And when he picked the box up that the weapon should have been in, he notices it's noticeably lighter. And when he gets to look in, he noticed not only is the firearm missing, but six rounds of ammunition that go to the firearm are missing. He contacts police immediately and lets them know. Now, why are we talking about this gun? Why is it important? Well, that's because they didn't find a murder weapon, but they do have the projectiles fired from the murder weapon. And as all true crime junkies know, that means we have striations and marks on the bullets. And the reason this gun is so popular in conversation is because it has what's known as polygyno rifling inside the barrel, which is different from any other firearm that was found in the home. None of the guns in the home had this kind of rifling inside of the barrel. All four bullets pulled from the Amato family all had polygyno striations and markings, which match the firearm that nobody can seem to find. When Deputy Moderson entered the home, the way everything was laid out was to make it look like a murder-suicide. And to a person with an untrained eye, you would have assumed it was a murder-suicide because Near Cody's body, there was a 9mm handgun found. There was a 9mm handgun found on the hip of Chad Amato. There were shell casings placed around all three bodies. None of those guns and none of those shells casing had polygyno striations or marks. Now, remember when we talked about the way the bodies were found? This is important, and we'd have investigators testify as to why this is important. Cody was found just inside the door that led from the garage to the house. 
There was blood splatter found on the door frame, but there was not blood found on the door itself, which told investigators that door was open. Okay. So, but when Deputy Modderson went through the house, his body cam footage shows the door closed when he enters the home. There's not a mechanism on that door that makes it close. So, when Cody was shot, that door was open. Whoever shot Cody closed that door. Now, remember, he also was found with blood pulled at his feet and not at his head where he had been shot just below the left eye. This is important because it shows to investigators the body was moved and there was hand on there was blood on his hand and the only way it could have gotten there is if his body had been moved. Now remember Chad was face up but he had two gunshot wounds to the back of his head. It is said that Chad was unpacking his lunchbox when the first shot to the back of his head happened. This did not immediately kill Chad, and he tried to crawl away from the perpetrator before being shot execution style a second time. Chad was found face up. With both gunshot wounds being to the back of the head, they should have found him face down, but they didn't. They found him face up. There was also that gun, that 9mm, found in the holster on his hip. The way that that was placed on his hip would have made it very difficult for him, who is a right-hand shooter, to remove that that weapon from the holster and use it properly. So it was placed on there backwards. Now, remember, Chad had to crawl across the floor. There was zero blood found on the gun and the holster. However, there was blood found on the pants just underneath the holster on Chad, which told investigators that the gun had been placed there after he had been killed. Okay, so the whole setup of being a murder-suicide is starting to crumble. It's also noted that one of Chad's fingers was noticeably cleaner than any other finger on his hand. He had crawled through the blood. All, All ten fingers should have been very bloody. However, there was one that was noticeably cleaner. Remember during the timestamp when we talked about the USAA banking app was accessed with a biometric fingerprint? Blay would testify that you could use the fingerprint of a dead body to utilize that biometric fingerprint scan. Circumstantial or not, prosecution had delivered one hell of a case. The layout of the bodies, of the guns, of the shell casings found inside the home on Sultan Circle indicated murder-suicide to the untrained eye. But when you brought in professionals and they broke it down piece by piece, it was just plain murder. There was no suicide. There was a letter found in Grant's possession at the time of his arrest. It said, quote, Grant, I'll take care of all of your problems. I just need you back. I can't live without you, brother. I said I'd take care of your problems at the house, and I have. No one will bother you again regarding this. Just please come home. I can't do this again. If you think I'm part of the problem here, then I've really lost you, and I can't take that loss after everything. End quote. This looks like it's coming from Cody. However, Grant would admit 
that he wrote the note memorializing a conversation he had had the night of January 24th with Cody in the driveway prior to leaving the home. Defense would try to paint a different picture than the prosecution. They they showed a picture of a, an abusive patriarch, a wife stuck in a loveless marriage, and the two of them as drug addicts and a possible growers of marijuana. Okay, so in the armoire inside of the parents' bedroom, there was a setup that is generally found with people who are growing marijuana. However, there was no marijuana growing at that time. They also found loose pot inside of one of the drawers in the master bathroom. They found two mason jars with pot inside of them in on top of a gun cabinet in the master closet with a grinder that is typically used to grind up the marijuana so that you can smoke it. There was also marijuana found in the car of Margaret. And all that proves or shows to anyone is that the parents were smoking pot. It didn't prove that they were some, you know, high-profile drug kingpin. didn't prove anything. And, you know, Chad was labeled as a difficult person, but he's also been known to say how proud he was of of his children. He left a $65,000 loan on his home that his son forged go through so Grant would not go to jail. That, to me, does not paint the picture of an abusive patriarch. Had he been that way, I don't... Grant would have been in jail a long time ago. He wouldn't have let that loan go through, but he did. And he was paying on that loan after he remortgaged his house so that he could pay for the debt that his son created. That, to me, does not paint this picture that the defense is trying to. Now, at one point during the trial, the jury is asked to leave the room and the defense presents a text message to the judge to ask if they can admit it into the court. And it basically says, it's from Margaret to Chad, from Margaret to Chad, and it basically says, you know, I'm sorry you're stuck in a loveless marriage. I, I, you know, I didn't intend for this. I, you know, I know you hate me. It's just, that may prove that Chad may have been a little on the emotionally abusive side to Margaret. Or maybe she was on the manipulative side. We'll never know because neither one of them are here to tell their story or fight their fight. But in the end, it did not give Grant the excuse they wanted him to have for taking out his parents and his brother. You know, we looked at this and we talked about this. We're missing three key factors in this case for the prosecution. So the defense had a very good chance in their fight. But Grant, even though he didn't leave them with a confession or DNA or a murder weapon, he left them with so much digital footprint, there's no way they could have talked his way out of any of it. Who? I mean, Grant was so obsessed with Sylvie. Who else would have downloaded all of those photos and provocative videos of her? Who else needed $599 to reestablish their account with mycan.com? You know, 
who else would have set that whole thing up? It all comes back pointing to one person. The defense would also say that the police zeroed in on Grant and never really looked anywhere else. Again, we look at the digital footprint that was pulled and where else are you supposed to look? I would, you know, at the end of the timeline, I asked you to form an opinion of what it looked like to you. And I assume most of you came up with the same thing I did. Grant did this. It all comes back to Grant and his obsession with Sylvie. It never registers in his mind that Sylvie is simply doing her job and he is simply a patron. He is a customer of hers and he is paying her to do these things. And she lives a very lavish lifestyle thanks to the nearly 230 grand you have sent her over the span of three and a half months. On July 31st, 2019, the jury would deliberate for eight hours before convicting Grant of three counts of first-degree murder for Chad Amato, Margaret Amato, and Cody Amato. In August of 2019, the same jury would deliberate only three hours before deadlocking. Remember how we discussed you have to have a unanimous vote in order to hand down the death sentence. Unfortunately for Grant, his jury deadlocked and he was handed a life sentence without the possibility of parole. In the end, Grant Amato chose a stranger, a woman halfway around the world, a woman that he has never seen in person, a woman who was just doing her job over a family that stood up for him time and time again. When Grant would mess up, Chad, Margaret, and Cody were there to help clean up the mess, never wanting Grant to fail. But no matter how many times he would fall down, he never seemed to learn his lesson. He took everything he could from the very people who loved him the most to give to a woman who used the term love loosely. And when he couldn't get any more from them, he killed them to drain them of their last drop, their life insurance policies. Grant was so infatuated with the dark-haired, beautiful woman that he let his mind build a dream world where she only performed for him. A world she would truly love him, and not just because it was her job. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we dove into this wild fairy tale of love, obsession, family, and murder. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an upload, and don't forget to leave a five-star review. And as always, I will leave you with a one-liner. Sometimes the person you take a bullet for ends up being the one behind the gun. Much love, the True Crime Librarian.